From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is Buffalo What's Next Producer Picks, highlights of our daily weekday discussion on race, education, and our shared humanity. I'm from Somalia. When the Civil War broke out, my family moved to Kenya. I was a young boy, but all I knew was farming. Today, an immigrant story. When we first arrived, we were settled in on the east side, seeing how the east side and the west side were. Like, why is this? Also today, Native American music and mental health. Everyone I know that, 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 that lives on a reservation, they have a relative and that's probably still alive today that survived the residential schools. And community resources may be coming from a new Buffalo Bills stadium. I think a lot of people just after years and centuries, if you're of some um, ethnic backgrounds of being disenfranchised, find it hard to even be able to believe that they can have success. So yes, of course, we need resources. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. Thanks for being with us. We begin with Jay Moran, an immigrant and refugee farmers from the Providence Farm Collective. Uh, with us, Hamadi Ali. He is the markets manager and also Dal Kamara. He is the uh, community engagement coordinator. Gentlemen, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. A lot to talk about, but first I want to talk about maybe what happened this year at the Providence uh, Farm uh, Collective. It, the, the farm itself is a, a beautiful stretch of, uh, of land out in the Orchard Park area. How much land is out there? Uh, about 37 acres of land. Okay. All farmed? No. Okay. About 25 acres farmed. All right. Yes. And it's interesting because there are, the farmers consist of people from different ethnicities, people of different origins, right? Right. How does that work? Uh, so we have nine different communities that farm at Providence Farm Collective, namely the Somali Bantus, the Liberians, the Burundis, the Karenis, uh, the Myanmar's, uh, the Burmese, we have uh, African Americans, the Congolese, uh, Ethiopians, so nine different communities that we have that farm there, and each community has their own farm. And also we have an incubator farm program, and the incubator farmers come from all these communities. So in each of these communities, a lot of what they're producing are, how do we, what's the term, uh, ethnic, um, uh, ethnically sensitive types of products, is that right? Yes, and culturally relevant foods. Okay. Yes. So you have the Congolese, they grow what they call the African eggplant. Uh, of, there are a lot of, there are varieties of African eggplants that are smaller than the typical Italian or the traditional eggplant. They're a little bitter, uh, very white, some are yellow, some are purple, grown by the Congolese and the Liberians. The Somali Bantu grow the African maize, uh, which grows taller than the typical sweet corn. And we grow amaranth. Uh, Roselle, I think it's grown by the Burmese. And what else that is unique? We grow amaranth. And amaranth, I think it's 
popular now in the U.S. with uh, uh, health, health or nutrition right. conscious people. Uh, but when we came, uh, well, I'll go back a little bit. Sure. A lot of Americans use the grains, but uh, most of the Africans that consume this or the immigrants, they eat the leaves. And a lot of Americans didn't know that. They only know that you can consume the grains. Okay. But we have introduced Americans, hey, no, you could eat the leaves and are edible and tasty. So there we have these different communities growing their produce mm -hmm. out at uh, Providence. Uh, do they is, are they doing it for their own use or is it to be sold? Well, for the communities, it's for both. Okay, they grow to consume, and they're not obligated to sell. The incubator farmers. So we have two programs. Right. The incubator farmers. These are small business. We are teaching them how to operate a small farm business. Find markets for them. They can sell, and they can also consume some, but we encourage them to sell and learn how to sell on their own. The communities, it's up to them. They can either consume or sell. And when it comes to communities, you know, Dow, this is, I guess, comes to you. How do you go about finding people who are interested in, in doing this? Um, we, we spread the word. Okay. Spread the word. Go down speaking engagement and... Talking more about Providence Farm Collective, especially from my community. Uh, we got involved with Providence Farm Collective through a church. We were in the church, and one of the a church members got in contact with the farm director, Beth, and uh, and Beth told her that, look, we have a space that you know, if you guys want to farm. Believe it or not, we've been looking for a place to farm for over 10 to 15 years and don't have access to farmland because farming is our way of life. And uh, when we got the information from a member of the church who said, I got a testimony, hmm. and we thought it was something different, and she said, guess what? I just got a call from Providence Farm Collective that they got a farmland for us to farm. That was the end of the church. Everybody was, everybody jubilated, we all were happy, and we get in our cars, we found our way straight to East Aurora to go meet Providence Farm Collective. That's how it started. So when we learn from there, we begin to spread the word. So from one community to another community, from one community to another community, community start coming in. But there's a process. You have to fill out an application and go through an interview to see how dedicated and committed you're going to be to the program, and uh, you'll be able to continue the farming. That's, that's how we get communities coming in. And it's interesting. You mentioned uh, East Aurora Dow. Of course, that was the former location of uh, of the Providence uh, Farm. Mm -hmm. uh, it has since moved uh, to Orchard Park. Uh, how much better is this land in Orchard Park than what you were utilizing initially? Oh my God! The land we own right now is a miracle land because uh, the first time we went to East Aurora, personally for myself, I put in almost tons of hours, and we did not realize nothing good from the soil because the soil was not. That prime soil, you know, that good for us to grow the kind of crops we wanted to grow. Especially the crops that we take from Africa is very sensitive to weather. So we really did not realize what we needed. That year we, we actually got 23,000 pounds of food uh, produced from there. But when we make our recommendation to our executive director, Christine, and uh, we the advisory board said, look, can you find somewhere better? So you know, she went on the move. We don't know how the miracle happened. We know she know that. But out of a sudden, they said, oh, no, we found somewhere else. Come and check it off. So we went out to check on, on Button Road. And when we got to Button Road the first year, 
we produce 91,000 pounds of food. So that's the difference between the 23 and the 91,000. And this year, I know we double it again because the farm is so good that, that we call home now. And we also need to point out that, like you call it a miracle, but the miracle does come with a, a price that I want to get into in terms of the, the capital uh, effort here for Providence. But I don't want to, uh, I want to keep that off in the distance here for just a little bit. I want to also, if I could, uh, Dow, talk just a little bit about your journey to here. Um, I mentioned this before we went on the air. <laughs> Dow looks like he could be in his, uh, he could be 20. And uh, he is not 20. He is considerably older. Yeah. Uh, Dow, uh, tell us about coming to Buffalo. Um, again, I told you I'm from Liberia, West Africa. And uh, I left my country because of a civil war that actually took place. And because of the civil war, uh, um, I seek refuge in the nearby country called the Ivory Coast, where I spent 13 years in the in the, in the refugee camp. And being in the refugee camp, I have no access to farmland. I lost my way of life and lost my tradition. Even lost other family members who mm. actually I don't know where they were. So when I spent all those years in the refugee camp, I live on handout because I couldn't grow the food I used to eat. I couldn't have access to my own cultural food because once ever you leave your land and you find yourself into foreign land, you don't have access to your tradition and to, to the land you used to have. And your way of life has been hijacked because you don't have a choice. So I had to live in a refugee camp with poor education and spend my young whole uh, life and go to refugee school until I got resettled by the resettlement team to come to the United States. And I came to the United States 2003. When I came to the United States, I decided to go to Erie Community College. And uh, going to Erie Community College, I went to Ball State and I went to UB. And I become a community organizer and serve as community leaders. And since then, I've been pretty much the kind of basic guy in my community until I have to meet Provident, I have met Provident Farm Collective. and. The more I met Provident Farm Collective, the more empowered I become now that I can reach out not just to the library committee, but all the different committees and create a network and relationship that we can make our community better. And that's my story. That's the journey. And one part of the story that you didn't mention right there is that farming has been your life. Yeah. You farmed from an early age in uh, Liberia? Yes. Yeah, since I born when my eye was open to life, it's only farming was the way of life. I go to school through farming. I got close through farming. Everything I does was farming. My mother was not a kind of educated person, so all she taught me is how to farm. So I grew up as a little boy being a farmer and a best friend to my mom because she always carried me every morning, and that was the teaching process for me. But as I began to grow up as a young boy, I began to develop interest in farming. So I said, look, I think I got to learn agriculture. <laughs> so I went in the field of agriculture to kind of have a variety of knowledge on what really it means, you know, to, to be farming. And I did that, uh, and I got my degree in my undergraduate degree in um, in agriculture before coming. But uh, when I get to the United States and I don't have access to farmland, I just say, look, let me forget about this degree. Like, I have to go back to school. <laughs> <laughs> so I went and learned something else until I have to meet Providence Farm Collective again that I have to come back to what I learned from from my from my from my from my early age. So now with everything I do at Provident Farm Collectives, I'm a farmer, I'm a community leader, I just sit down, I'm a community engagement person as family farm collective. I was going to ask this. So you're still farming. Oh yes. And uh, you're producing 
things that you produce in Liberia? Oh, yes. Right Example. Now, yeah, right now I'm producing three different type of airplanes. Oh. Yeah, three different type of airplanes that uh, you really don't know, and I'm trying to, we're trying to introduce it in Western New York. And uh, Provident Farm is working on this recipe that uh, whatever we produce, it can come to the market and have a recipe so people can know how to do it. So we produce the first the real airplane called the African airplane, and we produce the one you guys call guiding egg. It's a still African airplane. And we produce another type of airplane we call the kettle. And those things are very good for health because from where I came from, food is medicine. So <laughs> so, so you see us, somebody say, Is that why you look like yeah, you're 20? I look 50, but I look 20 because <laughs> okay. the kettle is helping me, the bit is helping me, and that recipe need to get to the market so you guys can you know, get used to it. So doctor is not my friend. The food are my friend. Forget the question of food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> from the Providence Farm Collective with us uh, <laughs> on Buffalo What's Next. We have Dal Kamara and Hamadi Ali. Uh, Hamadi, your job then is to try to put this all together and get it to to markets. Yes. What, what about that? How how does that go gone for you? Well, it's going well so far. Uh, last year when uh, we started, we only had uh, 18 members in our CSA uh, program. Uh, CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture, and we were only in one market, uh, a couple of markets. Okay. Yes. And also, we had this uh, grant from the Buffalo Bills Foundation aggregation um, grant where we can aggregate produce from our farmers and sell it, uh, not sell it, donate it to food pantries. So we were able to partner with um, uh, uh, Westside Community Services, Community Action Organization, uh, the Friends of the Night people, and um, the Salvation Army on Grant Street. Okay. Uh, so going back to markets this year, we were able to expand our CSA program to a 43 members program. That is almost, it doubled, not right. almost, it exactly doubled. Um, we were able to get into other markets. And another market I forgot that we are in, we partnered with Feed More of Western New York. Yes. So, and also this year we were able to uh, start our farmer's market on Buffalo's How did west that go? How did side. It, go? it was beautiful. Uh, first, when I started, I was like, is this going to work? And to the last day, we had folks come there early morning saying, oh, today's the last day. We're sad. <sighs> we came to just get our last, you know, shares. But throughout the summer, it, it was just beautiful. That's, that's it, great to it, hear. It was beautiful. And your produce now is also in other stores as well. Yes. Uh, we were able to get into Lexington Co-op in both of their locations, one in Hurdle and the other one on Elmwood. Okay. Yes, and I've been very supportive. And that uh, proved to be uh, prosperous uh, for for the, the collective? I mean, did it worked out well in terms of uh, yes. how, much, how much money you were able to, to take in? Yes, it worked very well. And our farmers were able to sell more produce and earn that uh, extra income for themselves. Yeah, so it worked very well. And uh, Is there any idea, like you said, you have the incubator program, mm -hmm. how much... What kind of value their their produce was worth this year? Do we have that? I, mean, I know you have it in terms of pounds, but do we actually have a, a dollar figure attached, or is that maybe too hard to calculate? Uh, 
it's not too hard to calculate. I have done rough numbers. Okay. Yeah, and, and our I see the, I see the twinkle uh, in your eyes, so I guess you do have that ready for me. I uh, have <laughs> yes, and uh, I think our farmers did very well because from last year to this year, when I compared the, I can't remember exactly what the numbers were. Sure. But it all it tripled, tripled. from what someone sold last year to this year. The same person it tripled and I went after everyone else and it seemed like everyone else either doubled or tripled their sales. Wow. Yeah. And this is because of the markets that we were able to get in and the farmers market. And also one more market that we are in, it's the, the Delavan Grider Community Center. It is a f- fairly new farmers market that was started because of the the tragedy that happened on the east side and Dow has been manning that for us. Uh, every other Thursday, I think it started in September, and it will end in uh, December. Oh, it's still going on. It's still going on. Yeah. When when it's at the Delavan Grider Community Center. When what day? Of the week? Uh, it's Thursday. I was there last Thursday from four to seven. Okay. Yeah, and, and it went pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. What about since uh, Hamadi brought it up, and you you guys now are you're Buffalonians, right? You know, what about Buffalo since what happened on? Jefferson Avenue. Have you seen a change in Buffalo? Um, maybe, but uh, I got it for me. Uh, I spend all my time at Providence Farm Collective now. <laughs> <laughs> so you're busy. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm a family because the reason uh, the reason I said it is because you want somewhere where you can ease your stress, where you can be able to have folks to talk to you. Still being around Buffalo and have no uh, counseling, have no one meeting committees because. If you if you look at what has happened on the east side, it's not just the family, but we as a neighbor and as a community, we all are affected. And when we are affected, there should be the round table where we have to sit down and actually discuss what the future holds for every one of us. What is the solution? What can we do to avoid this? How can we be one another brothers keepers? If we don't have such a conversation, it's like somebody just say, Let's just forget about them. They got to figure out the way. And I think getting into my route and doing my farming with my family, you know, having our, you know, our conversation, that, that helped us to ease, to ease our stress. But Buffalo need to improve. <laughs> we really need to improve. When such a tragedy happens, let's understand that we all are neighbor, we all are affected. How can we come on the table? Each community should have a seat on the table to be able to address the issue. Yeah. You brought it up. How how should Buffalo improve? Any thoughts? Uh, well, on improvement, but even before improvement, um, the whole beginning of PFC, it started with uh, Somali Bantu. When we first arrived, we were settled in on the east side and the west side of Buffalo. And if I was a young man, but just looking of the divide, seeing how the east side and the west side were. Like, why is this? This is America. People are supposed to be together. People are supposed to work together. But divide the divide was so huge. And as Dow mentioned in his uh, story or his history, I come almost from the same background. I'm from Somalia. When the Civil War broke out, my family moved to Kenya. I was a young boy, but all I knew was farming. I came to the States after seeing how 
the city of Buffalo was divided. It's like, well, I need to get connected to my roots. I went to school to ECC, like Dow, Buff State, and eventually to UB. <laughs> and I got, in, you know, I engaged with my community. How can I help my community? And one thing I was like, hell, we come from a farming, a great, uh, agrarian farmers, subsistence farmers. But I want to change that. But how do we get land? And I, me and others, the whole community, we start reaching out. This has to change because the divide, the segregation, something has to change. And the first thing to change is to get access to fresh food. The food stores that were around by the time I was living on West Ferry, it's either two miles going whatever way uh, Hartle or uh, East Amherst was or maybe coming towards downtown to reach the other food store. There was no other food store nearby. We had to walk. It's like, this is sad for the folks that live here. It's what they call now the food apathy. Right. Uh, so, yes. you saw, I mean, you saw this uh, so, uh, You saw this a long time, time ago. Time ago. Yeah. And that's how we start reaching out. And like Dow alluded, it took a long time. Took us from 2007 to 2017 to get land to farm on 10 years. We got on, we got the land, we start farming, and we start asking the questions, who should this food go to? Well, ourselves and the communities in Buffalo that need fresh food. So things don't happen in vacuum. What happened on May 14th has to do with all of this, the divide in Buffalo, and that has to change. Leaders have to engage. What do their people want? What do their people need? How you can educate the people? You say, uh, things just don't happen. The people that live in these neighborhoods, you go to a store, you shoot the store, which is very unfortunate, and then the store is closed. People have nowhere to turn to to go get food. And as sad as it is, it was fortunate that there were some organizations that were willing to give food. One of it was the Community Action Organization, which uh, PFC was donating food to, and PFC stepped up. Like, hey, how can we help? How can we do this? How much food did you uh, contribute? I have, I don't have the numbers, but it was a lot. Yeah. Yes. Every Tuesday morning, we made sure that we loaded our truck and drove to the east side on East Ferry, our community organization center, and delivered the produce. Uh, fresh produce. Harvested on Monday, delivered on Tuesday morning. Wow. No chemical, no pesticides. Clean. Grown right here? Grown right here in Western New York. Western New York. Yes. Uh, we're uh, coming down to our uh, final few minutes here, talking about the Providence Farm Collective um, with Hamadi Ali and Dow Kamara. Um, what about that? I think you've got, both of you gentlemen have done a great job of talking about the value and what the possibility of this is. But yet at the same time, I did touch upon this, Dow, a little bit. Like you said, we started off on East, in East Aurora. Somebody was kind enough to, to let you use some land. It wasn't really ideal for growing got this place in Orchard Park now where you can grow, but there is a cost with that as well. What can you tell us? What, what, do, what should we know about, about uh, this effort that's moving forward here? Yeah, and I think that's what I'm here called the Wagnes. 
What's next? What next? And right now, we have Providence Farm Collective and the Western New York Land Conservancies. We raised about two point three million, and within the three two point three million, we have six hundred and eighty five thousand that actually go towards purchasing the land and protection, and we have six hundred sixty five thousand that will go towards uh, infrastructure improvements, and we have. 725,000 that will go to our farm directed endowment and so and sustainability and uh, we also have uh, 141,000 that go towards the campaign management and we have uh, 110,000 that go toward contingency you see um but but currently our providence farm collective has secured 1.6 million okay as we have right now, and at the same time, uh, we have the March challenge of two hundred seventy-five thousand that is that is on the way. But at the result of the campaign, Provident Farm intend to actually provide uh, prime farm land and infrastructure assets and and uh, educational support for both the farmers and the young. The young adults, which is the, uh, which in our after uh, our summer youth program, because of everything that's happening right now at the 37 acres of farmland. So the education will be able to educate 300 farmers and 50 uh, young people within the summer youth program as well. So that's the future. That's the future we have right now. But then at the same time, what are we looking at in 2024? In 2024. We are hoping that uh, both the farmer and the young people that are in the summer youth program that in 2024 we can operate on 20 on 20 incubators farm and 10 community farm farm as as well in 2024. And the reason we want to do that because we still need to address the food insecurity, both in the refugees, the immigrants, and a black individual who are actually facing food insecurity right. in in Western New York and. Even if you look at uh, the statistics of uh, the estimate of 200,000 children, 22% of those kids in their home are so struggling to be able to put food on their table. And the goal of Providence Farm Collective is how can we make that process? How can we be able to address the food insecurity? So uh, we're still not stopping there for the future of Providence Farm Collective. What is on our way right now? From the operation of the farm, both the farmers and the youth, we're definitely looking at uh, how can our farmers get income and how can our youth get income. So we're looking at uh, within this program, farmer might be able to earn 45000 from their produce, and the youth can be able to earn over 100000 within the program from the youth program. And that money will be able to actually to address the food and housing insecurity. At the same time, they will be able to purchase school supplies. And other farmers will still use those farms to restudy their family members. And whatever farms are there will be able to address other community needs, like what we're talking about counseling and other services that will be able, you know, to be able to come, you know, to help the community too as well. So this is the future that actually the Provident Farm Collective is driving at. And, and that's what we're looking at. But without that, still we're looking at the youth because of 
we have a cultural connection. There's a disconnect between the kids that we, we born here and we ourselves because most of our kids really don't know about farming. And now we try to introduce farming. We want everyone to understand that farmers are aging out. And right. we need young farmers. Where would a young farmer come from? They were provided farm qualities working on. The young farmer is from the new generation. Okay? Why can we teach them? How can we empower them to be actually a farmers? Like my daughter, my daughter Kuban, who have never farmed before, who knows nothing about farming, but because of Provident Farm Collective now, she works alongside with me within the summer youth program, and she begins to develop interest, and now working alongside with me, and looking at her as a future of the new farmer, which want to change the dynamic of farming. So not only uh, making farm, but we're looking at the future of creating new farmers that we can empower them. Look, farming not just for old people alone. It's not just for people who with certain color, but with your young age, you can still you can still farm. You can still make an impact, and that's why we try to work on so that our kids can have the self acceptance, the confidence, and the sense of belonging that they all belong to the community and they can be a farmer. So the idea here then is with this capital campaign is to secure this land and keep it as part of the the Providence uh, yeah, uh, Farm Collective moving we'll forward. To call a place home. From 2021 to 2022. You doubled your produce output yes. at that farm. Mm-hmm. Can it get, Can there be more? Can is there is there more? Can you get more out of the ground than, than what you've already gotten? Yes. Yeah. Yes, and unequivocally, we, no doubt. No doubt. Okay. Yes. How we, how much do you think you can get? Uh, next year we might even if not tripling it, we might quadruple it <laughs> because we have so much interest. The amount of applications we have received have exceeded almost the first, the second, this is our third year of just incubator farmers wanting to come to farm at PFC. Folks reaching out, hey, I'm applying for this. Can I get it? It's like, hell, we have limited land right now. We have 37 acres. Right. And if we accept you, we accept you. If not, unfortunately, but we are working. We're working very hard. So, yes, it definitely the output will increase. And and increasing output, in, uh, creating incomes for folks. Also, farming, as Dow mentioned, um, we have folks that come to farm at PFC, and they will tell you that, hey, you know, uh, since I started farming here, I went to the doctor, and the doctor said my cholesterol level went down, my high blood pressure went down, and it's not from one person, not from two people. A lot of the farmers express the same thing, that their health, their well-being is getting better. At the CSA, when I hand out produce to our customers, a few people that can say, hey, since I, start, I joined the CSA program, I've seen a change. My health has started improving because I eat fresh produce. So, yes, our farmers are getting income. Our farmers come out and do what they love, but also in turn, they are improving their health. And I am a self, I'm a witness to that. I, <laughs> I am the markets manager, and I farm at PFC. I tell people I work seven days a week, but I feel like I'm not working a day, an hour in my life because I love what I'm doing. If I'm not the markets manager, I'm farming. They see me I'm there all day. <laughs> it's just it's the connection that folks get. So then make yeah. your pitch for the, the capital campaign. 
What what do we need? What what do who are you trying to connect with? We have people that want to farm. And land access is not easy anywhere. I came to realize that. And with all the developments that are going around the country, it's hard to keep land to be a farm in perpetuity. That's why PFC has partnered with the Western New York Land Conservancy to purchase the 37-acre land and keep it as a farm land in perpetuity for anyone that wants to farm. Uh, so we are in a capital campaign now that ends in December 31st. If anyone is interested, they can visit us at uh, our website at www.providencefarmcollective.org. And we are also on Facebook with the same name. And folks can see what we do and how to support us. And even how to join our CSA, our Community Supported Agriculture uh, Program. And we should also mention that the and we've been mentioned this before, but the Providence Farm Collective is out on Burton Road in Orchard Park, what just off of Newton Road, if I'm not mistaken, right? Not too far off of Newton, right? Right. And close to um the uh, park, the very famous park. Chestnut um, Ridge. Chestnut Ridge mm-hmm. Park, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh I can I know folks if they drove by they would see well, it's probably the land's been pretty much picked over by now, right? Yeah. But uh the idea that if this is not a farm, and like you said, land access mm-hmm. is becoming more and more difficult, that could easily become another housing development out there. But you you believe it should be farmed. Oh, yeah, it should be farmed. And it should be farmed because it will help to bring fresh food and culturally relevant food in western New York. And again, we actually letting everyone know that food is medicine. And I'm not talking about your primary doctor. Provident Farm will be your second doctor. Because <laughs> 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 the, food we gave, the food we gave you is fresh. And just nothing you can do. You can beat it. You can beat the price. And we had over 20 different types of crops that grew at Providence Farm Collectives. So we invite people to come to the tour, come and see what is happening there, go on our website, and Learn more about us and make us your friend. That's why we're in this campaign. But actually, our 275 farmers right now at Providence Farm Collective want to make that place a home. And when our land is bought, PSC actually going to protect it to make sure that it can remain farmland forever. Yeah. You're and, to follow up, Hamadi. Yeah, and with uh, what we grow, it might be cultural tra- or traditional foods to us, but even to some people, all the... Pro- I didn't know you could eat a green uh, green tomatoes. Uh, people buy green tomatoes, bring them to market. Certain people come and buy them in bulk. This is what they eat. Uh, tomatillos. We grow tomatillos, bring them to market. People come and get them. We donate them. Uh, one of the food pantries, one time we didn't take tomatillos to the food pantry. And like, oh, what happened to the tomatillos? Like, oh, do you guys like them? Oh, yes, we came here every day to get tomatillos. <laughs> <laughs> so supporting Providence Farm Collective, it supports the farmers, but also it supports the communities around Buffalo. It comes from one community to the other communities. Jay Moran with Hamadi Ali and Dal Kamara 
from the Providence Farm Collective. This is our weekly Producers Picks program, highlighting important interviews from our Buffalo What's Next programs, heard each morning at 10 and rebroadcast at 9 on WBFO. Each day, we talk about community needs and the under-resourced. Which brings us to legislator April Baskin and her talk with WBFO's Dave Debo about the resources that might flow from an agreement from the new Buffalo Bills Stadium. There is a confidentiality agreement in place, so she's not going to be able to specifically discuss the negotiations. But I think if we frame this discussion in terms of community aspirations and community needs and the things that a benefit agreement like this could certainly help out with on the east side, she is ready to do that and here this morning with us. April Baskin, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for having me. Can you discuss the status of it? Um, Or does that violate the confidentiality here? We are in a place where negotiations are ongoing. So with that layered complexity of all facets of the deal, not just the CBA, but the land transfer agreement, there's a a lot of things that have to go into the entire lease deal. It's ongoing. And what is, let's just do an above the trees here. What is a community benefits agreement? So a community benefits agreement traditionally is an agreement that a developer uh, would have with stakeholders from the community because the development um, imposes on the community or will shift the community in some sort of way. Is the premise that the siting of a stadium in Orchard Park and not somewhere else with that much tax dollars being put into it, is the premise that Uh, that is a detriment to the community and therefore money must come to the community to offset the ills of a stadium? I don't think anything affiliated with progressing our hometown sports team, our beloved (laughs) Buffalo Bills, (laughs) is a detriment. (laughs) You're going to find very few Buffalonians that feel that. But what I do feel is that we are making a substantial amount of public dollar investment into bringing a new stadium to fruition. With that said, when one considers a lot of the social issues that our community still deals with, um, where we rank in terms of poverty, where we rank in terms of unemployment, when we rank in terms of segregation, or where we rank in terms of lead poisoning with our kids, there are a lot of social issues that public dollars should be addressing. But because we are putting it into our local sports team, um, which I'm not necessarily against, I'm just asking that an equitable investment or some type of investment from the initial go back to those social issues. If, if any of these questions stray into the areas you can't answer, just tell me. Mm-hmm. Um, if the stadium costs the state $75, 80000000000 billion, give or take, and you're asking for money for a variety of community benefits, social programs, et cetera, why have the stadium be the pass-through? Why not just have the state give money for lead abatement, give money uh, to address segregation or food deserts or what have you, and not necessarily link it to the stadium. What's what's the connection that puts those two together for you in your mind? So in terms of investment numbers, right now we are at $250 million from the county of public dollars, $600 million from the state. And so... Um, the state does do that. The state does a great job. Um, the leadership that we have in the New York State delegation and our newly elected governor does an amazing job at prioritizing those issues. And so does the county of Erie. I think that every dollar 
that is spent of public dollars needs to be accounted for as how it is going to be a benefit every dollar we spend. There has to be some sort of reinvestment into people's needs. And where will that reinvestment come from? Is it profits from the bills, theoretically? Um, I can't go into details okay. about that, but I know that something that I've been advocating for is, yes, the essential leaseholder or the developer in this uh uh, situation, which would be uh, the Buffalo Bills, would prioritize how they are going to reinvest into the community because of the public dollar investment that they are getting for their private entity. I know that the towns of Hamburg and Cheektowaga, the city of Buffalo, Amherst, I believe as well. Orchard Park. Orchard Park mm-hmm. have all signed on to a resolution mm-hmm. saying that there are certain issues we support as part of this agreement. Mm -hmm. One of them is youth programs, another is transportation, Mm -hmm. another is business development. Small businesses, And then some sort of long-term fund because uh, we didn't know COVID was coming, but if we have a uh, a pot of money set aside Mm -hmm. for it, we can deal with it when it happens. Yes, health equity. Health equity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's take each one of those in turn. Mm -hmm. What would the youth programs funded by a CBA look like ideally in April Baskin's perfect world? I think that there would need to be a countywide assessment as to youth needs in various parts of Erie County, part of which makes Erie County so unique and so beautiful is that we have rural areas, we have suburban areas, and we have urban areas. And so the needs of those youth across the county are going to differ. So we cannot paint with a wide brush. I would prioritize... So the program that gets funded in Hamburg would be intrinsically different different than the one on the east side of of Buffalo. Of course, of course. The lifestyles in Hamburg are different than those in East Buffalo. So, of course, the needs of the youth are going going to differ and everybody's voice should be heard and accounted for because everybody is uh, public dollars is being invested um, into the new stadium deal. I think one uh, place of cohesiveness when it comes to youth is mentorship. We mm-hmm. all know that youth need to be mentored um, and sports. I think that um, it's very common to see youth, no matter what economic status they come from or neighborhood they come from, have an engagement in sports. And I think that that is something that is on par with the theme of the stadium. If we are investing into a state of the art experience for NFL players who make millions of dollars a year, why would we not equitably reinvest into the youth um, who want to play sports and and who sports it ends up being a pathway for, for their success and later in life as well. Sports is character development. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I know. I, <laughs> I, I am not much of a sports person myself. Uh-huh. And I think back to the time when my, my son was in high school and he uh, tried out for and made the football team and it changed him. Yes. In ways that me being a non-sports person could not have imagined. Yeah. But it was real. Mm-hmm. It, was, uh, it, was, um, it was visible. It was... Striking. Yes. And I now understand that role because of that. Yes. The arts does the same thing for youth who are not athletic. I was an artist, so I was not an athlete, but I was an artist. And a lot of the skills that I learned as an artist are skills that I use today as a local elected official. My other son's an artist. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, it changes. Bachelor of Arts in Theater. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. You're a theater major. Yes, that's right. All right. Uh, We're talking with April Baskin, chair of the Erie County Legislature. To the degree that we can, we're talking about the Community Benefits Agreement for the new Buffalo Bills Stadium. The negotiations are underway, and concrete details of that negotiation are covered by a confidentiality agreement. So there might be things she can't tell us about it, but we're talking in the broadest sense here about some of the programs that could end up being in that agreement. 
Talk to me about transportation needs. Yeah. Uh, east side transportation needs have always been huge. Um, and I know, again, that this agreement is countywide. So let's look at it both on the east side and then more generally throughout the county. What sort of transportation programs could possibly spring from this agreement? Again, when we talk about this being a countywide community reinvestment, we do have to look at the things that um, are continuous throughout the county that tends to be a struggle for residents. And I think residents all across Erie County struggle with adequate public transportation. When we look at other cities and we look at their transit systems, their subway systems and their trolley systems and their bus systems, you literally can get from point A to point B any time of day or night. That is not the case here in the city of Buffalo. Um, It's certainly not a knock at the NFTA, but I do think that there is place to grow. But the NFTA are going to need the resources in order to be able to do that. And they're going to need the community input so that they do it adequately. I think someone in the suburbs um, in in Tonawanda or in Grand Island deserves adequate transportation access to not just see Buffalo Bills games and be a supportive fan, but if they in turn want to get work on the stadium, they're going to need a pathway to get there if they don't own a vehicle. Is this something you cannot discuss? How large of a transportation subsidy would it be? Are we talking about an expansion of the Metro Rail or are we talking about more buses? I think logistically it makes more sense to look at our bus lines, but I am not a transportation expert, okay. so I won't comment. I just, <laughs> I just picture one being a really big pot right, of dollars right, right, right. and the other one a relatively smaller pot of dollars. There are immediate things that we can do with the CBA to address immediate issues, and then there is a way to use dollars from the CBA as an investment coupled with other investments from the state or from the federal government that can help expand. So maybe from a larger scale, there could be some type of smaller investment into looking at how we can uh, in, uh, develop mass transit through a rail system, you know, over the next couple of years. But immediately we know that we do have a bus system here and that um, more opportunities for people to have uh points of transportation to get out to the stadium is going to be something that the residents need. A shuttle to construction sites, possibly the stadium. So that was something that kind of thing. That that was something that I was very specific about. All right. Business development. Before I ask you what a program would look like funded by the CBA, talk to me about the lack of business development on the east side. How big of a problem do you think it is? I hear stories about the uh, business epicenter that Bailey Avenue once was, that Jefferson Avenue once was. And I believe that Buffalo and East Buffalo has the potential to get back there. But we have to have people that are dedicated and deeply invested economically into developing a plan to make that happen. So I think the business districts of yesteryear, specifically in East Buffalo, where we've seen tragedy as a result of a lack of of wealth um, uh, with the mass shooting on May 14th is something that has to be prioritized. But I have strong relationships with um, the Erie County ECIDA, um, with the Amherst uh, Business Chamber of Commerce. And so I know firsthand that there are other pockets of 
business development coalitions that are working hard throughout Erie County to make sure that our small businesses have the upward mobility that they need. Uh, the Erie County Legislature, in conjunction with County Executive Poland Cars, funded two huge uh, small business develop initiatives uh, out of COVID uh, federal dollars that we received. The first being the Back to Biz program, where we allowed for businesses all across the Erie County to receive a substantial amount of money to help with the upward mobility of their business post-COVID. And then in most recent, the storefront revitalization program. I knew you were going to go there. Yeah, that was going to be so, my next question. Yeah, so these are the types of things that have been innovative under my leadership of the Majority Caucus and the county executive. We, I think the CBA can carry out that spirit and continue to help small businesses. Do you think that money is enough? With the right amount of investment, could the Jefferson Avenue quarter be the next Elmwood or Hurdle? It could be, and money is not enough. It, it's it's. I will say it's how we use money that that really is going to determine the results. It's sometimes I argue with some of my adversaries <laughs> in local government. We cannot program our way out of poverty. We cannot throw money at poverty and expect things to change. You cannot just give someone um, a, a large lump sum of money and assume that all they need is that money to figure out the uh, their way out of a, a web of poverty or struggle that they are in. We have to invest in character development. We have to divest, invest in um, financial literacy. We have to invest in um, social, emotional inspiration. I think a lot of people just after years and centuries, if you're of some um, ethnic backgrounds of being disenfranchised, find it hard to even be able to believe that they can have success. So yes, of course, we need resources so that we can expand our businesses and our clientele, but we also have to invest into the spirit of the community so that we're really developing business-minded people. You're looking for basic entrepreneurs and say, hey, let me help you bring your idea to fruition. Yes, and I'm actually working on something right now in my bat cave that I'm uh, presenting to the <laughs> county executive and my colleagues in the legislature that aligns specifically with what we're talking about now. And now bring it back to me to the CBA. Mm -hmm. Would that be a funding stream? I believe so. It must be. Okay. And I'm fighting for that when we're in these negotiations. All right. You said something that I, I've never heard it expressed before, but I really like. Uh, we can't program our way out of poverty. Yeah, I'm repeating a, 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 a statement that was said to me by a friend who attended a conference where the conference leader said it, and it inspired me as well. We have a tradition uh, in impoverished communities to let's develop a program to help people who are struggling, when really that program is just helping people stay afloat in their struggle, is not helping them get out of the struggle. And so when I heard that phrase used, I kind of coined it yeah, and like adopted it. it, and it's true. The, the other thing that I think we might have to address is when you create a program, programs need to be administered. There is an entire middle level there without the money necessarily. And I'm not, I'm not uh, making a broad brush accusation, but there are cases when I think the program costs prevent money from entirely trickling down. Would you agree? I agree. I think there's a lot of people in certain communities that kind of cringe at the phrase trickling down because it's usually affiliated with a split 
tongue politician who is finding a way to make sure that all of their political cronies are put in a position to administer the program and it never trickles down to the people. So, yes, we have to come away from assuming that um, putting money, putting a pot of money to address a, a, a large issue like homelessness or unemployment or drug abuse or the opioid crisis is enough. My goal is to not have generation after generation after generation be um, dependent on a particular service. But should that be the role of government? Yes, that that is the role of government in these programs to help people with their basic day-to-day needs. Um, But they all have to happen in tandem. You cannot decide which one you are going to do. You need the the services and the programs. We do not need any more. We need more people who are effective and um, outcome-driven to run them. And then what we need is we need an exploratory resource and tool and investments into data collection because you cannot address root cause issues without truly going in and assessing the community. A lot of these programs are developed by people who have fancy degrees and they have a lot of assumptions about lifestyles that they've never had to lead. Erie County Legislature Chair April Baskin. And we close today with Ed Coban music director of the Native American Music Awards and someone who's working to combat mental health stigmas. There definitely is a Native American music scene. Okay. Um, and there there is a sound in the sense that a lot of that Native music incorporates many of the, some of the traditional Native instruments and themes that are underlying, but there's Native American opera singers, there's Native American hip hop, metal bands, it's not just a traditional. And Ellen Bello and Donald Kelly, um, who run the Native American Music Awards, that's been their... I think the goal is to kind of illuminate to everyone that this is a, a thriving contemporary music scene that covers every genre, and but the themes will often be the same. You know, they deal with a lot of the issues and 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 problems and topics that are popular in Native culture. It's interesting that Niagara Falls is going to be a place to host that. that that's a good question because initially, um, it's you know it would travel around the country. The the first awards was in 2000, I believe, and in New York City, and then it went out in the Southwest for a while. It was in Florida, in uh, Minnesota area, or, or uh, like Milwaukee, Wisconsin, sure, and area. And then in you know the mid the mid two thousands, they they came here. I became the house band, and this year I was the music director. Uh, the depth of musicianship here in Niagara Falls, like no matter what we needed, I could call on a musician here in Buffalo, native or non-native. The depth of of musicianship here in Buffalo is, is unbelievable. Your journey, uh, your music has taken you a, a lot of places. I love those kind of journey stories, mm-hmm. but for you, not just a journey across the country, but also it took you into this field of mental health. And I was just at open mic, and a, a guy named Dr. Daryl Tonema, who's also a musician, just asked me to come play some shows with him, and three months later we played the 2002 Winter Olympics. You know, so <laughs> it was really cool, you know. But he was also a mental health counselor, or a psych- psychologist, and he's one of the reasons I went to get that degree. He would We'd travel around the country working with youth, and I became aware of some of the issues that were happening in the Native community. The one that affected me most was the high rate of suicide amongst Native youth, and there was an incident where there was like a, a large mass suicide among some of the kids that he had worked with up there and that just hit me it's like I gotta I gotta do something more than just play music how important is it though do you think to have somebody who is Native American when it comes to mental health trying to assist people with mental health issues who are Native American well I, I think that's a great question I think it's essential um, there's many different aspects to being native and there's many differences amongst natives from like if you're a, if you're say you're a Seneca, it's a whole different 
world than being a, a Navajo. You, the the, well, there, there's over 650-something different native languages spoken in the, the, this country. There's no one-size-fits-all approach to it. So I feel that like native, each native community, it's best, especially with some of the issues that native people face that are really native-centric, like you know, other outside cultures don't even know that some of these problems exist. I think it's important that native people are taking care of native people because it's always been what we've had to do anyway. When it comes to mental health, and we've heard this in different forms through the years, that sometimes the biggest, maybe the biggest hurdle, most certainly the first one, is just getting the idea that make it culturally acceptable to say, I need some help. Sure. Is that, that the case here as well? Well, I would say, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, considering the, the, the traumas that, that some of the generations up to just recently have gone through with the residential schools, for instance, you know, um, everyone I know that, 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 that lives on a reservation, they have a relative and that's probably still alive today that survived the residential schools tragedy. They was a horror. Generalize if you could. Some of the things that happen to people in these boarding schools that are still traumatic inside communities today? Well, first there's the actual physical stuff and mental sexual abuse that happened. Without getting too graphic, you know, sure. there was, it was essentially rape and, and neglect, physical abuse, mental abuse. It was like being in a gulag or in a concentration camp. And they would, they would come at when the, these were young children, and a lot of times if they made it all the way to young adulthood, that's when they went home. So you were totally removed from your culture. You were told your culture was bad. You were removed from your family. And this happened generation after generation. So. When that, that tends to just destroy the, the, the family dynamic, there's so many problems that come along with that. There, there's a high suicide rate amongst Native youth that is like 80-something percent higher than any other culture. We have missing and murdered Indigenous women on a daily basis, much higher than any other demographic. Diabetes amongst the community, much higher than any di demographic. And a lot of that does come to the traumas of the residential school. And that being, that it was never talked about because the the... The elders would never speak about it. So that would always lead to issues where no one knew what to do about it. And so I feel like, to get back to your question, um, that it's it's essential that Native people really acknowledge what happened. And when you when you can't talk about it, you can't heal from it. And it's But when it's something like that, very difficult to talk about. And you did mention the elders did not want to talk about it. Is that changing a little bit now? Well, I think that, not so. I, I don't feel like there's a whole lot elders more willing to talk about it, but I think their descendants are. I okay. think the, the people who see what happened and understand and see the trauma manifesting in them through historical trauma, that they're more willing to speak about it. It, it's, it didn't happen to them, but it's happening to them in the sense that they're, they're dealing with the aftermath. And, you know, they see that what happened to their grandmother. And, you know, well, there was one time one of my friend's grandmas, like, we, we, they asked her about it. She said, yeah, you know, they gave me new shoes. That's all she said. I got new shoes. You know, it turned out the things that happened to her were, it was tragic, but the abuses were profound. What are people missing? What is the general American culture missing about the Native American culture that should be embraced, that could be embraced? I think most importantly that it's 2022. There's this disconnect with the reality of Native America as opposed to you know, people's perception. I think the people who aren't familiar with it, they think there's people still think, you know, teepees are how, where every Native person lives. And they have this kind of movie idea of dances with wolves, kind of Indian, Native American. and the, Or they have this kind of poverty, 
drunk reservation Indian. And it and it's there's so much in between all that. And you know the the native the native youth on on every reservation out there, you know they have playstations. They will they like hip hop. <laughs> you know you know what I mean. But they just also, like me exactly. But they also live in a culture that's kind of isolated. If you live on a reservation, but you also exist off a reservation, you're living with a foot in two different worlds. It can be a it can be a culture shock that actually is another mental health issue. It's like it's very tricky balance. Ed Coban with Jay Moran wraps up today's program. Buffalo What's Next is a daily discussion on WBFO each morning at 10 with a rebroadcast at 9. We're also available wherever you get your podcasts and on demand at WBFO.org. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.